Turn to uh, John chapter 3 in your Bibles. John chapter 3. John chapter 3. I think this is going to be a really cool little lesson. Hopefully it will be applicable and, you know, something you can learn from. We'll see. So John chapter 3. I'm sure you're all familiar with this passage. It's probably the most famous passage. It has the most famous verse in the Bible, you know. Tim Tebow wore it on his eyes. For that national championship game, so oh, that yeah, makes it more right. famous. It's on his yeah, well, it was on this little eye patch thing. It was the most searched thing in Google for that hour or whatever it was, or that football game. Anyways, John three sixteen, of course. But I want to start off by saying this: that I think the world is obsessed. You could say the world is obsessed with oh. control. I think the world is obsessed with control. They're obsessed with controlling things. They're, they want to make sure things are the way they want them. And you can say this on both ends of the spectrum, right? A person who's like the show Adrian Monk. How many of you have watched that show? <laughs> oh, yeah, I've seen it's that. It's the, the best show ever. Adrian Monk? Have you never seen Monk? Yeah, yeah. I have that show. That was an awesome show. It's about this obsessive, compulsive guy who is just completely neat freak and perfectionist, and he's also a detective. It's sort of like a modern Sherlock Holmes type of deal. Anyways, it's really good. A great show. He's obsessive. Everything has to be neat and orderly and squared and clean. Everything. It's awesome. I can totally relate to that guy. And then, but, you know, also control is on the other end of the spectrum, too. Like the show Hoarders. The, they like to control things, too. It's just in a completely different way. It just seems like chaos. But it's, they're controlling things. They're making things go the way they want them. But we're obsessed with control, I think we are too, and especially because we can sort of control our reputations. I think that's one thing that we're most obsessed with. That's why the advent of social media is such a big thing, is because we can control how people perceive us just by clicking a few buttons or making a few select tweets or whatever, and then people will think this certain way of us. You can really just put out whatever front you want, however you want people to view you, you can make that happen. Through YouTube and Tumblr and whatever other social media thing you're on, you can make people think of you and look at you different. And I have to say, I have to like battle this. I'm active on social media. I have to make sure that I'm not just saying stuff to make people think a certain way about me. It, it's easy to be drawn into that. It's a battle. It's a, it's a thing that you. I just want to be viewed as this really smart person, and I want to be viewed as this guy that everyone wants to go to for things. And that's that's a real battle. And so I think the most obvious thing about when you think about reputation is, and, so, and how important it is, is the recent quote from Ronda Rousey. Did you see the news that came out about Ronda Rousey yesterday or a couple days ago? Anyways, you know who Ronda Rousey is. She was that MMA boxer and she was in uh, UFC, I think, 193 or something like that. And she was heavily, heavily favored against Holly Holm. She had all the accolades. She lost in like 59 seconds, I think it yeah. was. She lost in 59 seconds on a knockout. Yeah. And it was a completely, uh, a complete shock. It, it just like shattered, you know, the UFC world or whatever because they were not expecting this at all. And what was amazing is that right after that, she went quiet for a really long time, and she's just now started to come out and make, do some interviews and stuff. And listen to the, what she said. I think she was on Ellen or whatever, but I saw this on Bleacher Report. This is one, a quote from her from an interview. This is after the fight. She said, I was literally sitting there and thinking about killing myself. And that exact second, I'm like, I'm nothing. What do I do anymore? No one gives a care about me anymore without this. 
She was so caught up with how people were perceived of her as this tough, macho UFC fighter that when she lost, she was undefeated before that, she thought, literally thought about killing herself. She had so much control, or she thought she did, over her reputation that when it was shattered, she was, what, what am I? What do I do anymore? See, that's what I'm saying is that we can have, reputation is so fragile. It's so fragile, and we like to control it. And I think there's another character in the Bible who was doing the same sort of thing. He wanted to, he wanted to follow Jesus, but he was trying to control his reputation too. He wanted to make sure people thought good of him at the same time. And those two things can't coalesce. Look at John chapter 3. In verse 1, of course, this is where it says, There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. You know who Nicodemus is. You know, probably know this story. Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night. He's a Pharisee. He's a member of the Sanhedrin, which is probably the elite of the elite board of guys who consider themselves the religious experts and aficionados of the day. And so they thought that they were high and awesome and powerful and cool. And he was on this council. And he comes to Jesus. He's heard of this Jesus of Nazareth guy. He's, he's doing some crazy stuff. I need to go find out about this guy. But he comes by night, obviously, because he doesn't want to be seen as a guy who goes to the guys that, he, he, that are against him. And so he goes to Jesus by night, and he comes there, and he, and he starts asking him things about, what does this mean? What, what are you teaching? What, what do all these things mean? And that, where have you come from? And he starts asking all these questions, and then Jesus, of course, gives him these really funny answers. They be born again. He's like, how, how does that happen? Do I go into my mom and then come back out again? What are you talking about? And he gives him some crazy answers. But then um, he goes through all this, and Jesus... But look at verse 21. Look at verse 21. It says, But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, that they are wrought in God. And after these things, Jesus and his disciples came to the land of Judea, and there he tarried with them and baptized. What happened to Nicodemus? You know, he has all these truths, these gospel truths given to him by Jesus himself, and we're never really given a resolution in this chapter about what happens to him. What happened to Nicodemus after this sort of discussion, this conversation with Jesus about the gospel, about salvation, about all these amazing truths of God? What happens? Because I'm fascinated by this question. And because I just think it's really interesting to see that this guy who had a one-on-one with Jesus. And it's not really recorded in black and white, so to speak, what happens to him. But if you look, turn to John chapter 7. Because there you saw Nicodemus sort of questioning Jesus. and, And he's going to and asking all these questions. But if you look at John chapter 7, Nicodemus appears again. John 7, look at verse uh, 52. I, um, where am I? John 7, uh, yo, no, verse 50, sorry. Nicodemus saith unto them, He that came to Jesus by night, being one of them, doth our law judge any man before it hear him and know it, what he doeth? So you have this scene here where there's this group of Pharisees and scribes and these guys. They're gathering together and they're trying to decide what to do with Jesus. They're making a big commotion. They're saying, oh, I think we should kill him. No, I think we should put him to trial. Look at verse 40. I'll read some of these. Many of the people, therefore, when they heard of this saying, said, Of a truth, this is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Shall Christ come out of Galilee? Hath not scripture said that Christ cometh of the seed of David, and out of the town of Bethlehem? 
So there was a division among the people because of him. And some of them would have taken him, but no man laid hands on him. So you have this crowd, and, and they're, they're discussing, they're debating, they're arguing, they're dialoguing over what to do with this guy, this prophet from Galilee. Because, of course, someone can't come out of Galilee. He can't come out of that area and be the Messiah. And so they're arguing about this. And then who stands up in the midst of this? I just imagine Nicodemus in the background. He's sort of like, wait, wait a minute, guys. We're not doing this right. He's sort of in the background. He's not really defending Jesus, but he's like half-heartedly like, this is not right. And, you know, he's trying to make a stand, but he doesn't have the courage. He doesn't have the, the confidence to really just be bold about it. Why? Because he's concerned about his reputation. He doesn't want to be blasted by his friends. And if actually he is. Look at verse 51 again. Nicodemus says, Doth our, lo- our law judge any man before it hear him and know what he doeth? They answered and said to him, Art thou also of Galilee? Search and look, for out of Galilee ariseth no prophet. So they immediately put him down. It's like, what are you saying? Are you with this guy? Are you with this Jesus of Nazareth? You're aligning yourself with him? So he's immediately probably like, no, 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 just forget what I said. Just, just go on. Move on. He, he was scared to make a stand for Christ because of what his, his friends, what, what his comrades thought of him. That he was afraid of losing his reputation. And I think that sort of scares him. This, this really scares him and shook, shook him because he's quiet for a really long time. The same Nicodemus who was questioning Jesus and who was here sort of half-heartedly, sort of kind of defending Jesus, he doesn't appear again until way, way later. Because look at John chapter 19. The same guy, he appears here in John 19. And look at verse 38. This is after the events of the cross, after the events of the crucifixion. Look at verse 38. And after this... Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, besought Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him leave. He came therefore and took the body of Jesus. And there came also Nicodemus, which at the first came to Jesus by night, and brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pound weight. Then they took the body of Jesus and wound it in linen clothes with the spices, as the manner of the Jews is to bury so you see, this guy, I think that phrase right there is so important where it says, it's actually talking about Joseph of Arimathea in verse 38, but I think it really does apply to Nicodemus too, where it says he was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly. Not, not in the open, he was secret about it, he was, he was closed about it, he didn't want anybody to know that he was a Christian, but he was, but he didn't want people to know that, because he was concerned about what other people thought about him. Being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly. He sometimes served him. He loved him, and he believed in Jesus, but he didn't have the courage or the confidence to confess Jesus. To confess him as Christ for fear of being removed from the Sanhedrin and all the prestige and all the power and all the accolades that probably brought him, no doubt. And it says there, look... Where it says in verse uh, 39 again, where it says, a hundred pound weight. You know, these like spurs and aloes that were done to sort of the embalming of dead bodies or whatever. What he brings there is enough for about 200 dead bodies. And I think that shows that now he's gone from questioning to defending. Now he's reverencing Jesus. I think the cross really shook Nicodemus. It showed him that this was real. 
This was a real thing that this guy was saying. This was a real thing that I was not openly standing for. And now he's reverencing, he's realizing what has happened. He's realizing that he should have taken a stand a long time ago. And now he's reverencing Jesus. You know, and what's interesting is we still don't really know what happened to him. But if you look at extra biblical, which means it's not canonical in the scriptures, but Christian tradition holds that Nicodemus was later killed as a martyr, as a missionary on the mission field. But it actually holds that he was baptized by Peter and John. He was later sent out as a missionary. He died as a missionary preaching the gospel. This same Nicodemus that came to Jesus by night and was questioning him, was wondering what was happening, and then who was not ready to make a stand. He was too scared of what people might think. And then he sort of reverences Jesus and worships him. Later is preaching the gospel of Jesus. I think that's an amazing story. That it shows that just what the cross can do to someone. As um, Alexander McLaren says, the sight of Christ's cross can make the coward brave. It leads to courage and kindles a love which demands expression and impels joyful surrender. What he means is it just really shakes you. That if you really think about what the cross is, how can you not take a stand for Jesus? If you really think about what Jesus did there, how can you not, as the song says... Uh, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe, so to speak. How can you not give him all? Or as Jesus even says, how can you not lay down your life for his sake? That's what it's saying. And I would also say this, that I think what we can learn from the life of Nicodemus is, don't serve Jesus in secret. Don't sort of piddle with the gospel and say, I can have my cake and eat it too. I can have my control over my reputation. I can have control over how people think of me, but I I still want to sort of serve Jesus. But I don't want people to think I'm weird. They're probably going to think you're weird. And that's okay. That's probably good. Not weird as in crazy, just they think you're different. They know that something is different about you. I think what... I don't mean to tell you the story to make you think that I'm some sort of pious guy or religious, blah, 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 whatever. I'm just saying that one time I was given this, the, one of the nicest things that was ever said to me actually came at my former job at Panera. I was working with these people for a long time, and some person just randomly came up to me and just said, you're a Christian, aren't you? Out of the blue, out of nowhere, and we got to talking, and she was a Christian too. And that, that just made me think that, what was I doing beforehand to make this person think that I was? That's what I'm saying is that it's not just about, you know, going out and just preaching and just shouting, Jesus will save you and you're all going to hell and all those sorts of things. <laughs> it's living it out. Just the way you live. You live with a sort of peace and a joy about you that makes people say, that person has something different. I need that. I need that in my life. And you can't do that and say, I'm too scared to sort of make a stand for Jesus with my friends. When I know that they're telling something that they shouldn't be telling, or watching something they shouldn't be watching, or whatever it is, are you too scared to say something? Because you're afraid of what your reputation will suffer. Are you afraid that they're going to look at you differently? Don't piddle With the gospel, as if it's not the most important thing, have the boldness to stand for Jesus. And as Paul says, to be called a fool for him. He says that in 1 Corinthians 1.27. Let me read that verse for you. You don't have to turn there. 
1 Corinthians one twenty seven, he said, Paul Paul says this. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. So it's not a bad thing to be called a fool if you're doing it for the sake of Christ, or to be called weak. I know there was one time, it was a long time ago, I forget the whole thing surrounding the story, but someone came out and said that Christianity is only for the weak people. And a lot of Christians got up in arms and was like, what are you talking about? That's not true. If I were to be told that, I'd be like, yeah, exactly. And that's why I need Jesus. I am weak. Thanks for telling me the truth. That's not a bad thing. Christianity is for weak people. It's for messed up people. People who are, who are sinners. That's what Christianity is all about. So don't be afraid of saying, yeah, I'm weak, but Jesus is enough for me. Or as Spurgeon said this, oh, may we never hesitate to be glad losers for Jesus. They who lose all for Christ will find all in Christ and receive all with Christ. I like that. Be glad losers for Christ. As it says in uh, as the, refer- the reference I was referring to earlier, which was Matthew sixteen twenty four, where he says, "They who lay down their life for me," that's what he's talking about. You're ready to lose everything for the sake of Jesus. You see, this is what the gospel does. This is what the cross does. Just as it does in the life of Nicodemus, it gives you the freedom to disregard your reputation. See, Nicodemus was trying to control it. He was trying to make sure everything stayed the status quo, so to speak. He didn't want to be looked at as weird, but he wanted to follow Jesus. See, the gospel frees you from that. You don't have to control your reputation, because your reputation, your identity, everything about you is secure in that cross. It's secure. You don't have to try and control it. You are justified. You are approved. You are fully and forever saved because of what Jesus did for you. You don't have to try and control anything about your reputation. You can stop clutching it because that's not where you find your identity. But also the gospel gives us the courage to confess Christ. It gives you the courage to stand because we don't have to meticulously and narcissistically sort of tinker with our reputation, with our identity. We can take bold stands for Jesus. We can say, yeah, I'm weak. That's okay. Or yeah, I'm proud to be a glad loser for Jesus. We can say that because of the gospel. And that's why I would just end with with this. How are you living? Are Are you living like Nicodemus, sort of in the shadows, in the secret, sort of serving Jesus, but secretly? Are you living in the boldness of grace, in the grace of the gospel? Are you living in secret or are you testifying in confidence? Are you living in anxiety, constantly trying to uphold and maintain your reputation? Or are you living with abandon, saying, I have faith in you, God, for whatever comes in this life? In a grace-filled, faith-fueled relationship. Because you can't have one or the other. Or you can't have both. It has to be one or the other. Are you living in secret or are you serving in the light. Let's pray.